This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with under-19s coach Carl Marius Axum. Alongside his role as under-19s football coach, he has completed a PhD in visual perception in elite football. He discusses this work within the podcast, the importance of visual perception, and how it affects the elite performers. A Norwegian native, he also discusses the performance pathway in Norway. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Carl, really appreciate you jumping on and spending a bit of uh, time with me this morning. How are things your end? All okay? It's very good. It's uh, it's snowing outside this morning, so uh, enjoying Christmas break in uh, Norway. Perfect. So, for people that maybe don't know you, do you just want to give a bit of a whistle-stop tour in terms of <clears throat> sorry, who you are and then what you do? Um, yeah, I guess those two things to begin with. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm 32 years old from Norway. Uh, been coaching for 10 years. Played uh, uh, to yeah amateur level, second uh, division Norway. That's the highest level I reached. Stopped playing when I was 23, 24 years old, um, and then I went into academia very early. So I did my bachelor's degree in football coaching from when I was 19 to 22. And then uh, pedagogical education, and then my master's degree in coaching and psychology. And then I got the chance to do a PhD on uh, a topic that is uh, very interesting to me, visual perception in elite football, which I finished in November 2021. And uh, immediately after I finished that, I got to uh, be a coach, football coach full-time, uh, working as a head coach at the under-19s of one of the biggest clubs in Norway, Odds Bolt Club. And uh, now I've been here for yeah a bit more than a year. And, um, I, I really, really love it. And I, I knew I would. Perfect. So we'll definitely come on to the visual perception stuff. I think that's something, you know, it's a hot topic at the moment in terms of how we help players um, make sense of what's going on around them, etc. But I think to begin with, if we, we could divulge a little bit into what the Norway setup looks like in terms of football and stuff. So could you just explain to us what, um, you know, what is the the pathway for a player, maybe from the grassroots to age groups, what does that look like all the way through to obviously, I imagine, an academy type system. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. what does that look like in terms of the pathway for you guys? Yeah, so I think Norway has been very slow in developing these academy systems like we see in other countries. So in Norway, we're more like the democratic. Uh, we we hope that a player develops in the grassroots clubs and then they can come later when they're good enough. But uh, in the last 10, 15 years, more and more clubs have developed this uh, the academy type that you see in England and Netherlands and Spain and all over where you where you select the best players early on and then you you hope they will go the pathway to the first team um and develop further and the results now in in the under 17 under 19 uh, european championships uh, world cup you see the young uh, national teams in norway are uh, progressing a lot i think they're the they're the, i think we are the nation in europe who has progressed most in the younger age groups in the so and the national team's getting better and you get players like Martin Odegaard, Erling Bretolan, who really is like the top level in the world right now. So I think um, something good is happening in Norway. I still think we could be better uh, in the development phase, no doubt. Um, I am I'm in the club. I am now currently in the top club who does not have an academy. So we have not selected, we do not select any players to this before the under 17 level in this club. Um, And that actually started this year. So when I came, it was only the under 19, which I'm the head coach of, who selected the best players from the area. Uh, And then it has to be said that this is the only club, the big club in this area. So we always get the best players when we want them. But uh, the deficiencies of that system is we are not able to um, 
to work with the players before they're uh, 15, 16 years old? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept. I think that, um, you know, I've had podcasts recently where people talk about the academy system and the positives and negatives of it. I guess from your perception, um, and you can see this firsthand, what are maybe some of the potential benefits you see for players that are coming in at those older age groups rather than starting at, you know, nines, tens, elevens ages? Um, And then also what are some of the negatives that maybe you see as well in terms of, uh, things they're unable to do or you know the work that you're you have to catch up on compared to counterparts like you mentioned there in terms of Spain Holland etc mm, uh, that's a great question and I would say uh, for me there's no doubt that getting the best players assembled early on to work to play each day against the best uh, that's the best solution if you want to create a top player there's no doubt for me uh, so I love the academy system if it's done correctly with psychological safety and with uh, lots of play and lots of love and uh, lots of fun. But to just collect the best players and let them train with each other each week um, would be the best, no doubt. But then I see players coming here late. Okay, they have always been the best in their club. They always played at a higher level. They they um, uh, they have all their mates from early on, who they can play with longer. They don't have to uh, drive far to get to training, which you need in some academies. So you, you have you have this chance to be a child longer and you can just uh, develop at your speed. And if you're good enough, then you play with the players two years older or three years older. So you always get the challenges that you would in an academy when you get to play against the best players. You would always get in a grassroots club. The problem is... Uh, the coaching quality most often and the training quality, the uh, the intensity in each training. So uh, if you are a very good grassroots player and you're playing with uh, players one year older, two years older, you're always allowed just to do your thing. You're not, you're, uh, yeah, you're working on what I like to call the X factor, which maybe that's what brings you to the highest level eventually. But you have too many deficiencies in your skill set when you come to us when you're 15, 16 to maybe reach that top level because you you've never been asked to work with uh, aspects of your game that you're not that efficient in. So you mentioned at the start, I guess, this being a period where you're seeing progression within the the Nor- Norway system, etc., um, what age groups do the academy start and what do you think has led to success of having people that export to, to other countries? You mentioned Odegaard earlier. Um, obviously, he went to Real Madrid at a particularly young age, etc. But that's they ultimately have the pick of the, the crop, if you like, um, mm-hmm. in terms of players all around the world. And they signified him as someone that was obviously high potential. So, yeah, what, what age group does the academy start? And then I guess off the back of that, what do you think is now um, allowing players to flourish and then potentially move abroad if, if they so wish to? Mm. Uh, it's it's very different in, from club to club. It's a big difference. But I, I know some clubs that are selecting players from 11, 12-year-olds but then not any younger than that. So yes, they have academy for six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, but it's not like a uh, a thorough selection uh, of getting the best players. That doesn't start before you're 11, 12, 13, around there in many academies. But then you, you often have a thorough selection process in those age groups. So uh, yeah, so... In my opinion, if you if if the grassroots clubs are okay in that area, you, sh- you should not get a seven-year-old. You should not ask him to come to a setup. Um, so yeah, it, it's different. I don't I don't have the exact knowledge of each club when they start, but I know that from twelve-year-olds, uh, thirteen, most most clubs have a academy setup. And in terms of skills that are being developed or knowledge that's being learned from those age groups above, what have you seen, I guess, firsthand? You, you know, you play in that under-19s age group, so you're going to see a lot of players that have probably now come through this newer system compared to the, obviously, you mentioned your, your guys earlier that um, are still going through maybe that more traditional system of being selected later on. What do you see... Um, 
do you see any difference in behaviors any difference in knowledge any difference in skill kind of yeah what do you see um that balances each other up i see uh the players have the skill sets are good if you're talking about skill as like uh, receiving the ball and passing the ball and for me skill is much more holistic than that but uh, what I see is the knowledge within the game, uh, the understanding of spaces is so much worse from these players than if you have been in a professional setup in an academy working with good coaches for a long time. They don't understand spaces. They don't understand. Uh, they used to the coach just telling them if the ball goes there, run. And they're fantastic at that run, but they don't know anything else. Uh, so when they're asked to play in pockets, when they're asked to rotate and interchange, they don't understand why. Uh, so their knowledge and understanding within the game is uh, is inferior, uh, very inferior. So, and so we have to work a lot of that aspects. And I see, especially the 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 type that comes to mind is the very very fast strikers, wingers. Uh, who is great one against one uh, in the wide areas uh, with a lot of space. They have this fantastic speed, but they've never been forced to play in uh, the midfield defense channel, uh, in the pockets between the defense and the midfield. And they're, they're, uh, they have no understanding of how to deal with those spaces. And then you, you alluded to it there in terms of um, you having to work on that space. So how do you play catch up in that area? What, you know, what things you do in terms of analysis or on field type work? Have you got any particular strategies used to help upskill them in that space? For me, everything I do in training is related to the game. Everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. So then uh... When we finish with our warm-up, we go straight into games, game situations. We never do a passing drill on a post. We never do a rondo uh, without any direction, without any thought behind it, except getting a lot of fast passes. So we're we're creating so many game scenarios that the players themselves they just have to. Uh, if you have if you have one training with uh, my team when you come in here. You just have to understand the spaces because you see one player is moving outside. Okay, okay, then the space is inside. So you you just by being in that environment and working hundreds of situations each training week specific to the game model uh, and just working with principles. So I don't tell them you have to be there and you have to be there, but it's more like understanding. Okay, we want to have those three uh, spaces occupied at any time. So when he drifts wide, you have to move up there and you have to rotate down. It's just creating this understanding and putting them into a lot of different uh, situations who resembles the game. That's my that's my way of doing it. Um, what got you to that way? So, you know, there, as you said, there's a lots of ways to skin a cat, as, as we say in England at times. What led you down the path of going, actually, I'm going to make this all as closely aligned to the game as I possibly can? I think for me it's been a it's been a change, it's been a development, it's been an evolution throughout because you start with uh, you know when you start uh, creating your game model. I think I started when I was like 20 years old. Okay, do I want my uh, team to be a high pressing team or a low block team and a counter attacking team? Do I want my team to play marking def man marking zonal? So you just start with those thoughts, you write it down um, based on your philosophy of how football should be played. And then uh, from there, you okay, you start creating exercises. But then, okay, all these passing exercises and everything, they, they, for me, it, it always lacked something. Uh, and the decision was not there. And then when I started going to academia at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences, you you, I started reading about uh, the constraints-led approach, the non-linear pedagogy, and it just resonated so well with me as a player, as a coach, uh, because instead of just working on a skill and then putting it into a match-like context, you could actually work on the skill all the time in the game. And that for me, just, okay, then we save so much time. We don't need to first use 40 minutes practice in passing and then put it into some sort of game no we can practice passing in the game from the first second 
And for me, it just, uh, yeah, it, it just resonated with um, how I believe skill is adapted and developed. Perfect. So I think that leads nicely on to the work you did around your PhD. So as you mentioned around visual perception um, within within football, do you want to give uh, people, I guess, a bit of an overview of what that means? So what does visual perception in football means? Um, and then I guess more importantly, why were you drawn into that subject? What, what interested you about that topic, which makes you wanted to spend multiple hours of researching and then pulling together a doctorate on it? Yeah, great question again. Um, I would say visual perception is how you use your visual sense to gather information from your surroundings. That's that's an easy way of saying it. And um, more specifically, when, when coaches talk about this, we often talk about the scanning. So, And scanning is looking away from the ball to look for information from teammates, opponents, space, or the referee. Uh, which is uh, yeah part of the development of play. So you're looking for information away from the ball because we're probably going to talk about this later, but uh, football players in a game are fixating over 90% of the time on the ball. So, so that's why we need players to look away from the ball because players are so attracted to the ball in a game. Uh, I got interested in this... Um, I think when I played myself, because I wanted, I was an okay football player uh, when I was 18, 19. I had some aspirations of becoming a professional, uh, but I, I wanted to be a central midfielder. I was a striker. I wanted to be a central midfielder. But when I tried playing central midfield, I had no chance of having control of the players around me. So I, I received the ball and the pressure came and I lost the ball every time. And I, I didn't know why. I had no idea why my technical skills are good. I'm I'm strong. I'm, I, 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 my touch is good. My passes are okay. Why am I losing the ball? Why do I, why do I have no time when I receive the ball in the tight spaces? And that's because I never scanned, and I never knew what a scan was. We never, we never talked about it when I was growing up. Um, and then. It just made sense to me when I started uh, my education and then we had some lessons with who uh, later became my supervisor, uh, Dr. Geir Jure, who is now famous for his scanning research, but maybe more for his uh, Twitter threads on penalty shootouts. Uh, so um, we actually worked together for six years. He was supervisor on my master's degree first and then my uh, PhD. So he really got me interested in the topic, showing me clips of Frank Lampard, uh, Savi, uh, showing the importance of this scanning. Okay, so when we're looking at this in, um, yeah, in a game situation, why is it so imperative to have good visual perception? Uh, it's very, just watch any Premier League game, uh, uh, La Liga game, Serie A game, look at the midfielders and look how their head is always moving to update the information because football today, it, it, it changes so fast. It changes all the time. So the gaps that occurred are maybe there for only half a second and then the gap is closed and the movements are happening so quickly. So if you don't always update what's happening around you, you have no chance to making the best solution at the best time. No chance. And football is moving faster and faster, and the player on the ball gets less and less time. So uh, the more updated knowledge you can have when you receive the ball, the better you're equipped to making the best decisions and the best executions. There's no doubt about it. And then now when I've been researching this, I just I just look at players and uh, I just uh, I'm a Manchester United fan. I watched, uh, we had a great game uh, this last game uh, against Nottingham Forest. I looked at Casemiro, who was applauded for the performance. But I see him and I see a bad scanner. He's a very bad scanner. So when he receives the ball from his central defenders, he always, almost always just plays it back one, time, one touch because he has no awareness if he has the space to, uh, to move into. Um, however, when he receives the ball facing forwards, he has great 
um, peripheral vision. So he doesn't need to scan much, but he sees every run. So he's able to play these true passes. But his scanning is not good. His, uh, his frequency is bad. His timing is bad. Uh, so his scanning is not good, but his visual perception in a peripheral vision is quite good. And in terms of um, the research, what does the research currently say around scanning, etc.? What, yeah, what, what does the current research say around this area? Mm. So the single most robust finding we have in all the studies is that uh, higher scanning frequency uh, means higher pass completion rates. So we found that in all our study. So the, the more you scan, the more likely you are to uh, to make a successful pass. Simple. <laughs> very, very simple. But we found it uh, in our Premier League study, under 17 study, under 19 study, my IAC study from my master's. We found it across all studies. And we also found that players uh, are performing more forward passes when they scan more. So more uh, breakthrough passes where they try to break through lines. So they're more advantageous in their passing when they scan more. And is there a uh, a key signifier between um you know the players that like you mentioned there are under 19s under 21s premier league la liga um and the, you know the high performers within those spaces is there a correlation between the regularity of scanning and those that are at the top end or is it very individualized it's it's individualized, but we see the difference more in the positions on the pitch than uh, the players. So what we see is there's no not like the best player in the world is the best scanner in the world. What we see is that all the best players in the world are good at scanning. So it's a, it's a prerequisite for being a good player, but the best scanner is not necessarily the best player uh, by far. So Lionel Messi... Uh, is not the best scanner. He's a very good scanner, but he's not the best scanner. But he doesn't need to scan that much because he receives the ball and he's still able to get out of every situation because of his technique and his decisions with the ball. Uh, but uh, but we see that Kylian Mbappé, Aling Horlam, those uh, those runners who is good at playing one touch, then running in behind, finding the gaps, they're fantastic scanners. Because they need to be updated. Where can they lay the ball onto? Which spaces can I run into? Uh, so they're great scanners. And in terms of gaining the information around the level of scan and stuff, what type of process did you go go through to do that? Because I imagine, you know, from a Messi example or an Mbappe example, you might be able to watch clips of individualized of them and go through that. But is there anything you were able to do with maybe an under-19 team around, I've seen them previously, but around goggles of where they're scanning and what that looks like? So, yeah, what kind of type of techniques did you use in that space to get the data? Yeah, uh, as a part of my PhD, I published four different articles on visual perception in, in uh, peer-reviewed journals. And three of them were about scanning and one of them were about visual fixations. So fixations is looking at something long enough to see details. And to uh, investigate that, we used eye tracking uh, goggles uh, uh, or eye tracking glasses on uh, first team players for one of the best clubs in Norway, Rosenborg um, and uh, and Starbuck, two, two clubs in Norway, first team players. And uh, they created or they they had a 11 versus 11 friendly uh, against another team. Uh, and then we were able to see what are the best midfielders in Norway actually looking at when they're scanning and when they're playing. And that's where we got the result that 90%, over 90% of all fixations in a football match is on the ball, directed directly on the ball. And the other 9% or so, they're directed on teammates, opponents, open spaces. But they, it just shows how much players are looking at the ball. We're so attracted to the ball when we're playing. And my belief is that players should be looking much more away from the ball because there are 21 other players who are making movements who you should be aware of. 
you should be aware of the space around you and you only have to look at the ball when something new is happening to the ball. That's the golden rule. Why do you think there's such a, a, I guess, fixation is the word? Why do you think there is such a fixation on the ball so consistently? It, it's just football. It's the ball. You're you're just uh, you're just attracted to the ball when you start playing football. You play with the ball all the time. You're watching the ball all the time. So I think uh, telling players to not look at the ball is um, abnormal. It's it's against your instinct. So for me, it's normal. But then again, it's teaching the players. You only have to look at the ball when something new is happening to it. That's like the key teaching point for me. No, I think it's a really interesting, in really interesting concept. I guess the next question for me is how do you implement that within an actual training program? So obviously you've mentioned there around the helping them understand that actually you can take your eyes away from the ball and that's fine. But how do you get them? How do you help them be able to achieve this so that that you're not just asking them to scan better on a game or you're not just shouting scan a hundred times from the sideline? Mm-hmm. <laughs> great question I, I what I see on Twitter is a lot of uh, isolated exercises where you just you play a pass and then you just turn your head and you're not looking for anything you're just, because you have heard that you need to scan after pass and before you receive the pass but please please let them look for something make the scan informational so even though you're just looking at a color bib or a cone or something Make them look for something and make them make a decision based on what they're seeing. That's very, very important when teaching scanning. And uh, for me personally, yes, I've developed, I don't know, I think maybe 40, 50 different, uh, more or less isolated scanning exercises where we're teaching this concept, but it's always looking for something and then making a decision based on that. Um, Or not a decision always, but an execution based on that. Uh, but for me, the best is still to develop this by making players conscious of it and then develop it into a game situation. So uh, watch videos with the players. Look at this. You're not scanning before you receive the pass. Then maybe talk about it before a session. Then maybe have some running coaching during the session. Fantastic scan, uh, Phil. Or I don't think you looked at the, in that situation before you received the pass, John. Or uh, you stopped the play and then you asked the players to close their eyes. Did you see the run of the winger? Which way was he running when you received the ball? Just making them aware of this uh, and you will see players engaging in this because they understand how important it is and they're getting... In the start, they will be missing some passes. They will be missing some receive it, uh, receives. But... Uh, very soon they will adapt this as a part of their passing technique, their passing skill. And they will they will get the feeling that they have much more space than they had before. That's my experience with all the players I've been coaching. Uh, they, will, they will have some problems in the start, but very, very soon they will have the feeling of having much more control of each situation. Okay, so that was going to be my next question. Obviously, you've worked with the players within within this context what um i guess how's it individualized for one um so that you know if there's someone who's in a, sp- a particular position maybe using the casemiro example from earlier if you know playing in that that six position or four depending on what you want to call it and you know the necessity for points to be able to receive and play forwards how, how do you individualize it towards someone like that and then two, what has been the feedback from players that have taken part in these sessions or these studies in terms of if you have seen a development in their capacity to do this, what feedback have, have they given you um, around this area? Mm. So to answer the first, uh, again, I think it's about how you design your sessions. So if we play seven versus seven, if we play zonal games, if we play towards small goals, towards end zones, I put the players in their positions. They are working in their positions. So even if we play seven versus seven, three zonal game, uh, the number six is playing in the number six position. So he's scanning in those areas in every minute of every training session. And the fullback is 
uh, out wide. But of course, we have the opportunity in our triangles that he can rotate inwards. And then he's forced to scan in a more six position. So by doing it that way, uh, a fullback gets more most situations in a fullback position. The six is getting most situation in the six position. So they're actually they're just scanning in their normal position, but often with uh, less time and space than they would have in a game. So uh, I always try to make the training more difficult than the game, uh, always. Uh, by adding constraints or by making the pitches smaller or uh, cutting some areas where they cannot play in uh, or having different rules so that the game would become easy for them. Uh, what was the second part of the question? Sorry. Just around the players that you've worked with in yeah. this area, what have what has their feedback been um, in terms of where they're at maybe before you did some work with them, what it felt like during, and then I guess what the outcome's been for them in their capabilities or performance moving forward? So the way I work, we have uh, each three months, I have a individual... Uh, development talk, uh, a very thorough one with uh, with all players. So I have 20 players now in my team where we uh, we sit down, we look at the development goals for the last period. We're discussing them. How do we feel the development have been? Maybe this player uh, together with me always, we decided for three development goals. Maybe one attacking one, maybe one transitional one, maybe one just uh, on the intensity of the training. Um, and then we watch every video clip uh, which I have tagged him in uh, in that period, in those three months, in every game. So we watched through maybe, I don't know, 150 clips, positive and negatives. And then based on that, we're seeing, okay, he's actually become better at these areas, okay, uh, but he's not become better in these areas. We continue with that goal, but we add some new goals. And, and by doing that, we're talking about, because of my background, background i always talk about body position being in the correct space early enough because then it's easier to scan so for me it's all about first position get early in the position you have to be in then get your body position correct open up and then it's so much easier to scan when you're in that space with the correct body position and then it's just about it's easy to scan and it's easy to take the perfect first touch if you're early enough in that position so we're just discussing those things uh, based on what we see together with the player. I want the player to experience this. And then just by being around me, I think the players are just, okay, I, I watched this clip with a player and he's saying, hey, hey, I did not scan in that situation. And, and, and my body position was facing backwards. Why did I do that? Uh, so they're becoming very aware of this. I know that seven, eight of my players have scanning as a development goal, but it's not enforced by me. It's always their suggestion. But I, I think they're damaged by having me as a coach, of course. So you mentioned something really interesting there around kind of poor scanners. Um, it's probably something I missed earlier on. So around those players that maybe are finding it challenging at the moment, is there any, I guess, key identifiers for players that you go, actually, if they do this or don't do this, that's probably going to lead them to being particularly poor in this area. I think if you if you start working on this very early, you have a huge benefit. You have a massive benefit. And those players I started talking about earlier, the, the very quick one, the great dribblers, they have never been forced to play and receive the ball in these tight areas and to play one touch or or uh, turning in those areas. So these players are very, they have some egos as well, you know, because they've always succeeded by doing their thing. Uh, so to put them in those situations and making them fail again and again and again, and they will fail more when they're suddenly starting to, okay, they're not even... They're not comfortable receiving. And now I'm asking them to both scan right before you're receiving and receive well, um, which is for some players very, very hard to do. Very hard to do. So again, you just have to make this like, I, I love mistakes. For me, I say that correct mistakes are fantastic. 
wrong mistakes are not good. So uh, correct mistakes for me is trying something uh, in the correct area. Okay, so you're 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 turning in the midfield defense channel and you're trying a breakthrough pass immediately and you're missing that pass. Okay, no problem. Fantastic. Okay, do, do it again. Um, or you're getting into the right area and you're trying to turn because you scanned, but because you scanned, you're not able to make that perfect first touch because you're not you're not used to looking away from the ball. Okay, but go again, go again, and go again. Uh, you can never you can never just let them get away with that. You have to still put them in these challenging areas and continue working with them with that, and then. Uh, create some sort of scenarios where they will succeed sometimes make maybe you give them some more space to start with then you close the spaces more then you open it up so they will succeed and then you close it so they will fail so you you're working with with this uh increase in difficulty decrease in difficulty all the time and so you've alluded to something there in terms of um you know maybe taking a poor first touch because you're trying to scan etc i'd imagine and this is partly from coaching experience partly from personal playing experience the easiest way to counteract that is just to drop particularly in those those defensive areas to go actually to give myself more time what i'm going to do if i'm a fullback is just drop deeper and deeper and deeper because even if i don't scan as successfully i know that i'm further away from the wide player which allows me more time how do you counteract that because i'd imagine for you know like you've mentioned there that's not a nice situation to be in for a player if the ball's coming to you you scan the ball's all of a sudden then within three yards of you you take a ball touch and it goes out for a throw in you do that mm -hmm. two or three times you're beginning to feel a little bit insecure in yourself going I can't even trap the ball today so mm -hmm. how do you manage that in terms of stopping them from taking the cheat or easy way out of just dropping off but also um, helping them to keep developing that skill so that eventually they are able to achieve it mm. um uh, by adhering to our principles so we always work on our principles in every training session main principles sub principles sub sub principles and one of my principles is uh, in attack we want close distances between our players meaning that uh, and i when i talk to my players on the pitch about this it's about creating passing lanes through through around and over the opposition so if the fullback goes too low he, we are not able to play him around the opposition, the opposition line, because he's uh, he's in front of the line when he receives the ball. So his position is wrong. So we're adjusting that. So he's not allowed to go down there to give himself more space because it's not advantageous for our team. Uh, however, he could uh, rotate uh, out wide in a winger position and give him more space in that way. Um, but he has to be... Uh, so my, um, I talk a lot with the first team here. We have a close connection. What type of players do they want? And they're talking about uh, action flexibility or tactical flexibility. So I want all my players to be able to play inside, uh, in the um, half space, out wide. They should be able to play in all those positions. And it should come natural that these rotations are happening. So, uh, yeah, the easy answer to that is if one player is very, uh, he, he's not allowed to be, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, cowardly in, in possession. He has to be tough. And I, I never kill a player for making those type of mistakes. Never, ever, ever. So I think we have this safety to, I know that my playing, my game model is very demanding. It's very dominating. Uh, and you have to be, you have to be very good in positioning and be able to play with both feet and receive with both feet and very good at scanning. So they're just, but when you do that, when you're making these, uh, when you create these expectations, but you still allow them to make many mistakes, they will not shy away from that. They will, they will continue making those mistakes, in my experience.
so yeah, I think I think that's a really nice thing around that te- uh, tactical flexibility piece, etc. And I think aligning it to the values of the team of going, you know, this is what we want as a team. So you know, you, in order, I guess, to a certain degree, in order to play and progress, you have to be able to, you know, show improvement in this area. We're not saying you're going to be brilliant at it, but we have to see that you're trying. Um, mm. I guess the the question next around that is what can players do as extras in this space? So if we use the fullback as an example, who maybe we're asking to come a little bit higher and step into that traditional midfield role, or whatever you want to call it, and come inside in that inverted fullback position. Mm. Um, obviously, there's going to be particular types of scans or, or, or whatnot. What can players do as extras to help them achieve this away from the group and is there, are there any particular sessions designs or activities that you say to them listen go and do this it will help you might not feel it within the day the week the month but over long terms you will see progression by doing this during your own time yes uh definitely and i when i when i work with first team players here who wants to get some specific exercises that they can work with their mates or their dad or then I always I always give them some examples where you can work two, three together, just just isolated on this skill. Like you're passing and then you're turning your head, and then the player behind you is moving to the right or to the left, and you're you're receiving and you're taking the touch in the other direction of the pressure, for instance. That's the easiest way. So a player is moving to the right and you are going to the left, or a player is pressing you from behind, meaning you take a touch forward. So just by by focusing on this, making the players aware of this, uh, they can work on it uh, in groups of two, groups of three, groups of four, no problem, no problem. Uh, and it, of course, you can do many different exercises, but the most important thing is try to scan for colors and movements uh, and, and try to do these quick scans because scanning at the top level is very, very quick. Uh, average scan is 0.4 seconds from the moment you leave your eyes from the ball and you're back ag- again to the ball. 0.4 seconds. So that's very, very quick. Um, making it, So swivel to the right and then turning back to the left towards the ball, 0.4 seconds on average. And almost all scans a player does is uh, 0.66 seconds or less. Over 90% of scans are, are so uh, quick. For people that are listening, one I've used before that works quite well as nicely, if it's just a person by themselves with a wall, is to get an iPad there as well. So if you get like a TV program or something on YouTube and then they have to call out the color that's on the iPad or the predominant color. So like you mentioned there, it's kind of taking on board some level of information. um, And actually... That that wouldn't be specific to the game, but you would be... You would be practicing just looking for something. Yeah. And 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 for me, I don't think you become a better scanner doing that, but you make yourself aware of the importance. So you will then, in the next training session, you will take this with you. Uh, and then you would practice it and become better at it in a game situation. And I, I guess it's, it's one of those ones, if you are by yourself, what's mm. what's the 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 best you can do if you cut if you haven't got anyone there to be able to you know constrain the environment to then take touches in particular environments or different types of pressure actually doing it in some capacity is probably better than not doing it at all um so yeah it's, it's kind of building that into what we're doing actually there's going to be some element of taking on board a little bit of information behind me um, yeah, I agree. So the classic, uh, a kid is standing, passing against the wall, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. If you introduce that you have like this iPad behind you and then between every pass, right before you receive it, you yell out the color, of course, then you are actually doing a receiving passing the way you would do in a match. Yeah. And when I discuss the rondos, that's always my main answer you're not passing and receiving the way you do in the match because you every receiving moment in a match is preceded by a scan and in a rondo you never scan before you receive the ball so have you got adaptations of rondos that you like yeah uh, i use i use some 
for me, it's not a rondo anymore if you have a, a direction. If you have an end zone or goals, it's not a rondo by definition. Then it's uh, it's another exercise. But yes, I use rondos. And I, I, I use uh, Guardiola's uh, 4v4 plus 3 uh, because it, it, it adds some sort of direction. But when I do that kind of exercise, I always uh, do things like uh, only one touch because... For me, it's not about developing football skills in that exercise. It's about uh, being very, very quick with your decisions. Um, playing right foot, left foot, receiving right foot, left foot, bang, 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 very, very quick. Adjusting body positions very, very quick. So I do very seldom, but I do sometimes 4v4 plus 3. I do 3v2 plus 2. But it's always the goal of getting the ball from one side to the other. So it's never counting passes. It's always uh, you get a you score a goal if you play from the one side and to the other side and then back again, for instance. Um, but then I use those so seldom. I all almost often make a similar exercise, but I make a direction. So we have an end zone you can dribble into or play a pass into, or you have small goals, or even better. You put the big goals with the goalkeepers in straight away in those type of exercise. Perfect. And then in terms of um, the future of this or what best practice looks like, obviously this is something that's become more and more prominent in, in coaching discussions around this space, which I think is really healthy. What would you say, in your opinion, the future for this research, et cetera, looks like? And then also what would grade a look like so if you could design a program that you think would most benefit players to have prolonged exposure and success with scanning what would that look like in your eyes mm. <laughs> two big questions <laughs> um i would for me uh, i i have a I have a small part in a in a research project being done in new zealand right now where they uh, where they try out different training exercises uh, to develop scanning. So more isolated exercises, not isolated, but like uh, two with two exercises, three with three exercises to develop scanning. And they're actually doing the study to see, okay, is this uh, a training exercise that improves scanning or is this or uh, is focusing on scanning in particular, making the players better or do you need uh yeah it's it's some exercises that are better than others for instance so i like that uh research it's never been done before um the future for me would be uh the players will scan more but they will scan with better timing you will see players scanning with better timing so they will have this perfect timing between looking at the ball and looking away from the ball uh with something new happening to it ball. So every time a pass is being played, you will see 10 players on the same team swiveling their head at the same time. That will be the future. And you will also see players having their head up when they receive the ball every time. Now you see that sometimes, you often see that with central defenders because they have a lot of time. So they always have their head up when they receive. But most players in then condensed situations, they receive with their head down on the ball but the future will be players receiving with their head up um, uh, the perfect setup for me would be uh, teaching passing skills with the youngest players should never be done without introducing this as well so you should uh, when you when you train eight nine year olds uh, in passing you should talk about this thing can you before you receive the ball maybe you play a two versus one situation maybe you play three versus two that's how i love to develop skills with the younger players then just talk about the players before you receive the uh, this pass did you see which run that player was taking and then just creating this early awareness of that importance of looking for teammates looking for opponents if you, the opponent is close by, okay, then you're not turning. You're playing the pass one touch back instead. Um, so just introducing this concept as part of uh, learning and developing passing skills uh, would be 
uh, my dream. Perfect. I think it's definitely something that we'll keep our eye on from our end. And I'll make sure that if I do see any more articles from yourself come out that we, you know, retweet them or send them out, because I think it's a, it's a fascinating topic. And as you said, in its infancy, in terms of it coming across to coaching side and affecting coaching behaviours and stuff, which is ultimately, if we're going to help these players be ready for the future game, be that playing down the local park or be that playing at Old Trafford, it's something that's going to need to need to be um, applicable for them. So, listen, really appreciate your time to discuss this. One last question for me, which is, if I were to ask uh, the people that you work with or that you coach, um, how would you want them to describe you in three words? Um, professional, honest, uh, hardworking. And why those three? Uh, because it's values and, and that's the type of coach I want to be. I, I want to be... Uh, professionality is everything for me uh being on time being prepared to do the work every day to get that one percent better um and I, I always want to work the hardest i want to it's not always having the most hours but but really work dedicated to become better as a team and myself as a coach and honesty for me i i try to be 100 honest with my players if a player is not playing, I'm 100% honest. And if he's not performing uh, in training the way I expect him to do with his focus intensity, I'm 100% honest. And I want them to be that way to me as well. So, yeah. Perfect. Listen, Carl, really appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we can see more of your work coming out again soon. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.